From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Hello everyone, this is Tom and Jaro. Today we are having a talk with Jeremy Berman. Jeremy is specialized in the history of psychology and is a new member of our faculty. He currently teaches the courses History and Application for the first year students, Controversies in Psychology for the third year students, and he's a part of the new Reflection on Psychology Master Track. He talks about the work of a historian of psychology, his path from the dot-com era craze for money to becoming a scholar, what inspired him to study the development of developmental psychology, his interest in Piaget, how the meaning of concepts such as gene change over time, and how that changes the way we explain the world. We started off talking about his teaching experiences at the university so far. We followed a class of his history and application course, and we shared our impressions of it. I'm glad you like that course because history has a reputation for being notoriously boring. And if you do history, um, it's fantastic. The, the trouble is that getting past all the names and dates and places and big ideas and to the things that really matter. Um, first of all, you can't see the things that really matter if you don't already know the names and dates and places and all these so um, there's a, a kind of a minimum amount of necessary suffering. And I, I don't know, maybe because I lived in England when I was a kid and watched Mary Poppins, I try to have my medicine come with a spoonful of sugar. Mm -hmm. So the, the first year course is different from my MA courses, where the first year course is kind of half stand-up comedy. Um, it's a hard balance to maintain some I think on some of the course evaluations there were comments like you know <laughs> more facts less jokes yeah people are not used to this here I would no. say it's not really a custom for um, lectures to be more informal or not to stick straight to the facts that you need to memorize mm. and that's, that's perhaps what why people are saying something against it I thought it was really refreshing that's well, the the readings are full of facts. Yeah, and you know, if you just want facts, that you can get facts uh, anywhere you turn. And I mean, you're in an office full of facts, but my hope, and having had some some inspiring professors myself, my hope is that you're going to come to my class because you get something out of that that you can't get from the library or you can't get from youtube or whatever and that because television is not the same as a live performance i'd actually prefer everybody to be in class it's it's very difficult to gauge people's understanding if you can't see their the look on their face and and part of my approach is not to stay in my notes and that would be much easier just to today we are going to read 
one long, incredibly unbroken sentence. And like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, you could yeah. do that on your own. You don't have to come for that. And I want, I want people to want to come. I want people to enjoy the material because I enjoy the material. There are certain things that are really surprising when you dig in, when you dig in, because I know I'm, I'm a psychologist. I have a Bachelor of Science from the University of Toronto. I am at first a psychologist, but my specialty is history. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, as a result of being a psychologist first, I do history a bit in a funny way. But yeah, your background is pretty interesting. You started off with biology. I'm, uh, I went all over. Yeah. Um, in the 90s, I was involved in the dot-com era, and uh, all of us thought we were going to be billionaires before we were 30. That didn't work out so well, but it was a beautiful dream. And um, I went to the University of Toronto in 1999. It was my first year in finance mm-hmm. to, in order to try to understand this stock market stuff that was going on. How is it that it's possible to dream of being a billionaire before you're 30? And the, the finance professors and the economics professors said, well, you, it's not, that's ignorant. Everybody who thinks that way is irrational and a fool and their money will soon be parted. So to the extent that people are offering you something, take it, spend it, <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's going to go away. It's, this, is not, this is not real. And um, it felt real, um, and the economics models didn't have any support for feeling, didn't have any support for um, the irrational. Things were just dismissed as irrational. So I said, uh, Professor, who studies the irrational instead of dismissing it? Well, then I went, ah, I don't know, psychology, philosophy, something. I'm like, oh, really? Bye. <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> so I went and, and um, uh, I think I took first year psych in my first year because it seemed interesting as a minor. The Canadian style is a four-year degree, not a three-year degree. Canadian style for courses is 13 weeks of three-hour lectures per week, not seven weeks of two-hour lectures. Um, I didn't do four years. I did four and a half, but I also threw in some summer courses. Um, to catch up. I did two years of finance and then didn't, like, I, I wanted to finish. I, <laughs> I figured out how to answer my questions. I studied the things. I picked out the stuff I wanted to pick out. And, and after a point, I was like, okay, it's time to have my degree. Give me my degree. How do I get out of here? How do I, like, do something real now? Um, so I had to take... You know, there are all these certain requirements, but the, the flexibility that of having a degree, especially at the University of Toronto, University of Toronto has a, a cool system where if you graduate, then you can, with the permission of the prof, you can take anything. So you can take any course, any, any course you want, mm-hmm. as long as you have the necessary basics. And I had, I had followed a funny path. Well, I didn't think it was a funny path, but but it turns out, talking with people, that it's a bit weird. I didn't care at all about my grades. Sometimes I get an A+, sometimes not. Um, so if you look at my transcript, in Dutch terms, it would be 
you know, there is a 10, but there's also <laughs> everything else. Um, and, and I didn't care, uh, because I was trying to learn hard things. So I took neuroscience courses when I knew that I wasn't going to get tens and neuroscience stuff. Uh, but that meant that when I got to take anything I wanted in my, I guess my fifth year, my open year, I was able to do a neuroscience wet lab in the medical school. So we had brains on tables and, and I had never seen a brain out of a textbook. So all of the useful color coding and labels obviously don't exist in a brain, but it's also much smaller than you think. It is nothing like a computer. Like if you're looking for where the RAM goes, like where's the memory? <laughs> it's not here. That um, the physiology isn't always exactly the way it's, it's supposed to be in a textbook. Things can be missing, which is weird. Um, and I, I don't remember what it was. Something was missing, uh, and I asked the the prof, and she said, "Oh yeah, yeah. There's a note in the file." <laughs> Why didn't you tell us before? And we spent 20 minutes trying to figure out how we were wrong. But it was fascinating. And I, I did another one in biological anthropology, um, studying apes and teeth. So your like true fascination with this uh, academia process happened after you finished the degree. Yeah, I thought, I thought I was still on this path to billionaire thing. Mm. Um, and that, and that kind of died in 2002 or 2003, the bubble burst and, and I, um, I did some consulting and I worked in a couple of different areas and people used to make fun of me for being academic, that I would, I would be asking questions and, and wanting to write more than was necessary <laughs> and, and sticking around, not just finishing and leaving. I, I, there's something here. Let's, let's look into this. And I wasn't interested in um, faking up stuff that worked. I wanted to understand things. Uh, and that usually is a path to science. It, it, the path to history <laughs> was a bit weird. When that's, when that's the goal, ending up as a historian of science is a strange conclusion. But I think the most influential person in that sense was, was Jan Sapp, who I met... Jan Sapp, who I have all of his books, but this is the one that um, he had published bef just before I met him, and this is the one that he he used in our course. To the listeners, it's called Genesis, the Evolution of Biology. <laughs> Sorry, this is radio, not television. I can't just wave a book around. Uh, and um, as part of the open thing at the University of Toronto, I, I met him and I said, I don't know enough about evolution. I'm a psychologist. I'm not a biologist. And, and you're teaching the history of evolution, the history of biology. Can I take your course? Um, I have some particular ideas I want to explore. And he said, yeah, come on. Um, you seem interesting. We had, a, we had a lunch or a breakfast or something. And he kind of uh, <laughs> he interrogated me in a very nice way. Um, and the result was that I ended up being able to explore psychological ideas from the perspective of a real historian of biology. Jan is one of the best historians of biology in the world. And to have that in my home university and not take advantage of it would have been totally crazy. Um, 
But the psychologist whose biology I looked into was was Jean Piaget. Mm-hmm. And I had stumbled into Piaget because I, I audited a grad course and the prof was talking about meaning, which is sort of my one of my main interests. Um, and he said that we'd been talking about Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a very influential book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And the professor was uh, said that one of Kuhn's big influence was, was Jean Piaget, but Piaget's work is all in French, and it's such a shame that nobody speaks French at a high enough level uh, who's a trained psychologist and who knows about biology and who knows about all these things that Piaget was drawing from. And then he kind of interrupted himself and said, Jeremy! And I was in his lab, you know, like I worked in his lab. So we had breakfasts every week and for years and like I was part of his team and I, and I loved that. Um, being able to be on somebody's team, being in somebody's group, it's hugely important to really learn what it's actually like mm -hmm. to do this. So I started looking at Kuhn from the perspective of him being a kind of Piagetian, and, and which, which is actually not a historical thing to do. Um, you don't go looking in history for reasons from the present. You don't go looking... I mean, you can go looking to answer questions, but you don't go looking with an agenda in that way. So the first couple of years of, of my studies of Piaget were like agenda driven. I, I published something about Kuhn and Piaget together, but all of my early stuff, I would write an essay and give it to Jan and he would, he would literally make it bleed. He had this red pen and he um, went through the first page of a 20 page paper and it would be dripping. And he would hand it back to me and look over the top of his glasses and say, now, do the corrections to the first page. And then make all of the corrections to the rest of it that I can't read because this is killing me. Mm. Make those corrections, like, figure out why this is bleeding and make it readable. Because no one is going to suffer through this entire piece. And I, I, I wanted that. I wanted, he's, a, he's a professional writer. His books are Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press. Don't get, um, you don't get higher than that. As, and he, he had a Canada Research Chair. Like if, you know, this is somebody who's, who, and he's a nice guy and he's a great mentor. This is the ideal person to model yourself after, right? And uh, I, I wanted to be like him but for psychology and he's a he's an interesting character as a historian too because he's using historical methods to advance science which is different from having questions from the present or having an investigation that's driven by the present and looking for the answers in the past how is it different uh... well it's um he he knows how the story ends but his histories aren't constructed in a way that leads you inevitably to that ending. And that's, that's initially when I started exploring the connections between Piaget and Kuhn. I assumed that Piaget influenced Kuhn and that was the direction. And um, 
if you assume that, then you don't look for the reverse. And as it turns out, um, Kuhn influenced Piaget. Kuhn was a visitor in Geneva. Uh, there was a, a collaboration isn't the right word, um, but there was an interaction. And there are things in Piaget's work that we don't understand that you can understand better if you read Kuhn. And there are things in Kuhn's work that you can understand if you read Piaget. Um, Piaget has a book about how, uh, how studying child development gives you insights about the history of science. Nobody knows that book. It was published at the end of it, just actually after his death. Um, it's called Psychogenesis and the History of Science. Uh, but that's like, no, philosopher science don't engage with that. We don't think of Piaget. I mean, Piaget is called a genetic epistemologist because that's the term he used. But if you ask anybody, you know, go on the street and say, what's genetic epistemology? First of all, uh, nobody knows what epistemology is. But second, especially not in North America here, uh, my understanding is that epistemology has a, a larger audience. Um, but the, but the, other, the second thing is that genetic means genes to virtually everybody, except Piaget mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and Piaget's influences. James Mark Baldwin and, and Darwin uh, used the word genetic, but Darwin is before genes. I mean, that's, that's a bit awkward to say. Genes obviously existed before Darwin. <laughs> But Darwin didn't have a conception of genes. He had different things. Gemules was one of them. But he still used the word genetic. And, and so when you go looking, genetic has a different meaning. And this, this, um, this is fascinating. There's all sorts of words that we use that have different meanings at different times. And different people who use them in different ways. But uh, everyone assumes they mean the same thing. And it's especially problematic in translation that you pick something up out of one context, move it somewhere else, plunk it down, and assume that what in their, the foreign context that they're discussing is the same as what you're discussing. And inevitably it's not. Mm -hmm. As part of a little bit of what I was trying to get at in the history and application course is that um, there are names and dates and places, but what really matters more is when things move because everything is moving all the time. People are moving, ideas are moving, these, these societies that were founded um, are, are venues where, where things move and, uh, and ideas move, but the way that they move, the paths that they follow is a reflection of the relationships between the people. So you have to start asking questions about who knows whom and who's friends with whom and who hates the guts of that guy so they're never going to be in the, same, in the same session or the same room or the same even the same meeting. And knowing those things really changes your view of what science is, what psychology is. So, from the perspective of how do you use history to see the future, well, I, I don't have to serve the discipline in 2025 because I don't know what the discipline's going to be in 2025, but I can see where things are going, and I can see that there are some similarities to what happened in the past, and I can see that, that if we understand the past, then we have a broader range of possibilities in the future. We have more perspective. We have a potentially deeper understanding because the same sources are being used, but they're being used in different ways. 
Some of Piaget's ideas about biology were totally crazy from a contemporary point of view. But the point of history is not to judge. The point of history is to understand. You have to step into that world, that foreign place, and see out from that perspective. If you can do that, then you can understand why they said what they said, ideally. And then you're not, uh, you're not suffering from the problems of, of the present. You're, I mean, we're, we're in the present. One of my interests is moving things across boundaries, which is where the, I didn't want to talk about memes, but you said memes. And um, memes are an, the memes are an example of boundary, uh, of a boundary object. Uh, and the reason I didn't want to talk about memes is because I get in trouble uh, for treating something historically that everybody else seems to treat philosophically. And uh, when you look at the history of memes as a concept, you see that they changed over time. And, and um, historians are interested in, in change. Philosophers are typically more interested in things that don't change. So when I did my little history of memes, showing that uh, they have a really interesting biography, if you adopt the perspective of a meme being a person and tell its life story, remembering that you have adopted that perspective, then, so I wrote a biography of memes, and because biographies of scientific objects were... Um, being talked about at the time, I wrote a biography of an unscientific object. I thought that would be a cool flip, a nice reversal. And um, I got some really nice email and more not-so-nice email from people who didn't read the piece. I think I, that that's definitely my most highly cited article, but if you go and look at what they say... I think more people cited that piece for the reverse reason of what I said. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I've proved that memes are a thing because by doing a history of memes, I memed memes and then I charted the, the course of memes evolving and changing over. No, what? If this weren't radio, I'd be swearing at this point. This is not... You can't... You can, memes are a wonderful method. Memes are a wonderful philosophical method and if you want to know how to use memes as a method, you read Dan Dennett. But you can't forget that you're using a method. As soon as you say memes are real, and therefore we need to make this marketing campaign more viral, more sticky, more uh, infectious, if you're not speaking metaphorically, you don't know what you're talking about. But if it's a method, if you're going to do an epidemiology of ideas rather than a history, then, you know, maybe you use a network analysis to do that. Maybe you you turn to the tool and do an actor network portrayal of, of how uh, a concept has moved through a social network over time, how, how objects, as they shift between contexts, move from one network to another network. Memes are a method, but they're an unscientific object. And psychology in general, it's 
still kind of frowned upon to use evolutionary reasoning to <laughs> to like uh, explain behavior, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe the problem is that we use purely evolutionary, or like maybe the criticism is that you use purely evolutionary uh, ways of explaining and not integrating it. But the focus is so much on nurture. Uh, well, it's um, it's changing. You know, and there's there's fashions and there's styles. There are lots of problems with evolutionary psychology. One of them is that it's theoretical psychology, but they seem not to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's probably the most popular kind of theoretical psychology. Yeah, it's interdisciplinary by nature. You have to. That's the wrong way to put it. Interdisciplinary by nature is the wrong way to put it. It's by definition it's interdisciplinary. It's yeah. a, it's an intersection between evolution and psychology. And what Jan actually Jan Sapp told me about interdisciplinarity is that it's harder than being a specialist because you have to know both sides mm-hmm. equally as well. And ideally, because you're going to get criticized from both sides, you have to know both sides better than the specialists. So now you've got good luck, double the work, just to be the same. And which means that evolutionary psychologists have to be keeping up with what's going on in evolution. And what's going on in evolution doesn't look like evolutionary psychology anymore. That the, all of these stories that are told about, you know, imagine humanity in the savannah because we are anatomically modern humans there are fossils that show anatomically modern humans tens of thousands of years ago. If that's the case, and our biology is the same, then can't we project? Can't we? Can't we? Uh, t- can't we tell ourselves an, a, a believable story about how we, being anatomically modern, would live thirty thousand years ago? And now we can treat that situation. Uh, as if it were identical with the contemporary. And the only way you can do that is if you if you disregard development. Mm-hmm. Never mind the fact that the context is going to be different. You, you, you certainly have to disregard development. And development implies an interaction with context. People say that Piaget ignored the context. People say that Piaget ignored the social. It's just wrong. Yeah. He, he, one of his chairs that he occupied was a professor, a professorship of sociology. He has a book called Sociological Studies. It's not correct. It's incorrect, but it's it's part of the the origin myth of developmental psychology that he's a cognitivist because he used the word cognition and uh, he used the word cognitive. Never mind that he used it in a completely different sense than Berner did. Never mind that Berner may well have gotten it from Piaget in the first place and took it in an American direction. All of which is to say, um, evolutionary psychology is doing things that you have to believe in genes. Um, you have to believe that genes are the only thing that matter causally. There's no development. There's no interaction with context. And if you believe that, then you can make arguments uh, and you can sell books. But once you make that move, if you say the gene is the only thing that matters, you're not doing biology anymore. You've stopped being interdisciplinary and you're doing something different. 
you also start needing easily falsifiable objects. Like you have to, you, you need to have a gene for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody believes in one gene, one outcome anymore. But underneath a lot of evolutionary psychological argumentation is there is an evolved, inherited biological cause for the thing that we are studying. And we are going to learn something by studying it in various rigorous ways. But it looks like the premise, like the fundamental premise, isn't going to hold. It looks like, you know, every year since the Human Genome Project, we've learned that we're just wrong about huge amounts of stuff. I, I said before, humans have fewer genes than a tomato. That's not a joke. I mean, people laugh, but it's, you know, I used to know the numbers, but the numbers keep changing. Um, the last time I looked, I think tomatoes had 40,000 genes and humans had 27,000, but it could be 23,000 now. And, you know, it's just details. You gave a very good um, um, example with how you can see in the change of the idea of a vampire how also the um, society was changing. Um, how would you say the vampires would change now at the moment? <laughs> well, this is, yeah, the vampire, um, that was something that I had hoped would make complicated ideas more accessible. And it's something that I've been kicking around for almost, it's a project I've been developing for almost 10 years. Um, and the, and it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, the project is going to work. Uh, once I've finished writing it, once I finally find some time to finish writing it, it, it will be publishable and it will be very interesting. But it, as a pedagogical tool, it didn't work as well as I had hoped. Using something from history in order to, to, show, um, to show something of the present that looks like it has nothing to do whatsoever with this thing from history. Uh, it's, I, you know... It, I can't even ex- I can't even explain it now. It's just it's a it's think you know how, the amount of email that I got, people saying, what was the connection between vampires and and hypnotism and mesmerism and willpower and uh, and that was the that was the point. The point is that there isn't a connection today, but there used to be in in. Uh, it was more that the vampires changed with uh, society as society changed. Well, I'm glad that somebody got that because that was, one it was of the quite big, clear. But... That was one of the big points, and that that's a big, that's a big. It was supposed to be a, a revelatory uh, so what moment where my hope was to see 400 faces go oh, and what I got instead was huh. Um, so that was a bit of a disappointment, but you know, I'll I'll shelve that piece of the course next year. I'll write up the article and I'll assign the article, and then we'll talk about it, and it'll be much clearer. But the point is that um, that history doesn't have to be names and dates and places. History can be cool stuff. History can be can be tools for thinking about how things are and how they used to be, how they could be. Part of what I like about the 
the program here in Groningen is the reflecting on psychology graduate program is is run by the theory and history of psychology group which first of all is awesome because there are not so many history and theory or theory and history groups there are three graduate programs in the world two of them are in Canada I come from one of them and so so by default Groningen is the best in Europe by default uh, the best on on this side of the Atlantic um, and because there's nobody else really on this side of the Pacific also you go the other way uh, where there are other historians of psychology doing work or theorists of psychology doing work it's not usually done as a reflection on psychology sometimes it's a critique of psychology sometimes it can be a deconstruction of contemporary work uh, and that can get nasty when there isn't a an attendant reconstruction and I mean that's one of the challenges that we have is is that um, for psychologists who use history as a method the goal is to contribute to the discipline not tear the discipline down well it, it's not a it's not a house that we live in that historians are running around bashing holes in walls <laughs> you know people worried about their entire institution falling on them that's not that's not what we do well some yes some people do that but i don't think that that's i don't think that says anything about uh history i think it says something about them this podcast was a production of mindwise for the department of psychology at the university of groningen